Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. So I'm super excited to dive into some of our favorite health myths because these are just topics that Jen and I could rant about all day long. But before diving in, y'all know that I love spending time in the kitchen. And there are just kitchen staples that you cannot go without. Salt, oil, these are things that I use every single day. And just recently, I've started using Ava Jane's Colima Sea Salt and their avocado oil. And it's absolutely incredible. I always have a container of salt ready to finish dishes, to season dishes, and to use in almost all of my cooking. The amazing thing about this Colima sea salt is that it's harvested right from the Colima sea salt flats in Mexico. It's ocean-born, microplastic-free, and all natural. And I love being able to have products in my kitchen that I can absolutely trust. I love using it as a crunchy. It's like a thick salt flake, so you can use it for a crunch on steaks or meats or different dishes or finishing sweets. I don't know if any of you have ever tried sprinkling sea salt on top of cookies or banana bread or anything like that, but it just adds this amazing depth to the sweetness and the flavor. Ava Jane has so many incredible products like their sea salt, avocado oil, sweetened cacao beans, different artisan spice mixtures, and so much more that will help up-level what you use in your kitchen and also give you products that you can trust The amazing thing is you can get your free bag of Colima sea salt absolutely free. You just need to pay shipping. If you go to the link down in the show notes right now, there's no code necessary. Just click that link, grab your first bag of sea salt for absolutely free. Try it out. Let us know what you think. I have been loving using this in my own kitchen along with other products of theirs. So grab one of those before we hop into this episode and up level your kitchen just that next notch. All right, now let's head into health myths. So this is going to be a fun episode because we're going with in with no script, which I prefer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Jen, are you, are you nervous? No, I'm good. This is this is going to be fun. Um, and we're going to touch on some topics that might be a little touchy for people, or you know, might trigger some things because it's going to be four of our favorite health myths or least favorite health myths, yeah, I myths know. that we hate and want to tear down. <laughs> so not favorite, our favorite ones to crap on a little bit. I know. And this is where you can find me getting a little fiery and passionate <laughs> about some things. And it's because I think, you know, it's things that we've heard repeatedly, repeatedly, re- repetitively, you know, I just there kind of go. combine words all Rushed the time, it. repetitively over time. And, and something we have to keep explaining and it, I mean, you know, we're going to keep explaining these things forever and that's fine. But if we can start to change the message around what they actually do and get people on the right track, then people can start to find solutions a lot faster. Because there's always going to be just an abundance and an overabundance of information out there. Yeah. And there's going to be good information. There's going to be bad information. There's going to be information that has good intent. Yes. But sometimes we don't like exactly how it's explained or what it makes the person think. Yes. You know, I'm always going to say that I don't, ever think i mean not that i don't ever think but i don't think most people go in with ill intent when they're trying to teach somebody something or help somebody i mean most people are in the profession of health or in the profession of physical therapy rehab to help people um but also the words that you use as as a provider the words that you use as somebody who's 
educating somebody in their body and in their health matter. And the things that we say can go with people for years and years and years. And so that's kind of why we want to touch on some of these topics and give our takes on them. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really cool to be able to see now, like the changes that I hear in our people who have been with us for a while now uh, doing the online program. So never have seen us in person, but have continued on the gen health journey or different challenges that we've done and hearing them from the beginning, fearing pain, fearing different things that would come up. And then to now like, oh, I know what to do if this happens or if this happens. And they're no longer falling into these myths that we're going to talk about. And it's so mm-hmm. empowering to be able to see these changes and and see people have the tools and the knowledge and the education about their body. And even if pains or things come up, there's no freak out. There's, there's just like, okay, here's what I'm going to be doing. And here's how I'm going to approach it. And here's how I'm going to keep moving. And it's like it makes me want to cry to think about. So these are really important. And this is why I get so passionate because being able to lead people to a place that you can actually start to have management within your own health and within your own body, that's the key to longevity. Are you tearing up? (laughs) I mean, I'm pregnant, you know, so. (laughs) I don't know if that's the gleam of the light on your eyes or (laughs) do you need a tissue? Uh, You know. Yeah, and I think the one thing, and again, a thing, a real issue I have with a lot of these myths is a, so many of them are restricting or so many mm-hmm. of them create that fear that you just talked about, create limitations and barriers rather than that empowerment, again, mm-hmm. that you referenced that we, we love to coach people and educate people into empowerment so they can find independence. Mm-hmm. So myth number one, where you want to start? Should I start with my favorite? That's very controversial. I think you should. <laughs> okay. Not controversial in our minds. Not controversial in my mind and not something that needs to be like a line drawn in the sand, but I just, the language around it is really poor. So the myth that I, I hate and, you know, if this is you, I'm sorry, let's let's rephrase how we're, we're approaching it. And it is, I'm going to go, you know, I need the adjustment to put me back into place. I need the adjustment. It's going to put my disc back into place. I need the adjustment. It's going to help my rotated hips. All of these statements are just not reality in what's actually physiologically happening within the body. And we did a podcast episode, episode 90, that you can listen to. And it goes into a lot more detail and education on what adjustments and manipulations really are. Um, physical therapists use them as well. Wow, surprise for some people, right? <laughs> and and they have a time and place for sure. Yeah. And they can help along the pain journey 100%. I'm not against them. I'm against saying that it's going to put something back into place. And I've actually yeah. had, um, after that podcast came out, I did a live with a chiropractor who wanted to talk more about this candidly. Mm-hmm. And we did a live together and, you know, I think we both were in agreement in so many ways. And there were some things that just didn't make sense and add up to what he was trying to convey. And funny enough, got to say that live was not saved. No one could go back and listen to it. (laughs) So I'm just going to put that out there. Noticing some sass coming in here. (laughs) And again, I think the the thing, the fundamental thing we want to come back to is that in one session, in one manipulation, you're not moving the joints back into place. You're not completely like relocating the pelvis or like a disc being out of place is rarely ever even a thing. Like rarely ever yeah. is a disc coming out from between, you know, vertebrae and needing to be 
pushed back into place. So it's just all of this terminology that we really have an issue with. And like like Jen said on episode 90, we talk about the benefits of manipulations mm-hmm. and adjustments a lot more than we talk about like this, it, the issues that we have with it. Like yeah. it does a lot physiologically in that short term for people, yeah. which is what you feel. And that's why you feel good after they're performed on that's you. That's why you feel aligned. I yeah, mean, that's why that bec- tension Because release. when we get that crack or when we get that cavitation, cavitation. you know, of, of the joint, it helps us release endorphins in our brain. It helps us get global and local relaxation of muscles. So what you were perceiving as your hips being out of place, your hips being misaligned, a disc being out of place. And when you get that relief immediately in that area, it's that confirmation bias to say, okay, disc is back in place. I can breathe easy now. But no, you're getting all of these global and local benefits of muscle relaxation, some endorphins, some happy endorphins, happy juices that are starting to get injected into the system. And so that's what we want to speak into. It does give us this global relaxation that then you should be able to work with. Yes. That then the provider should come and say, okay, now let's do these core exercises to get you really working through your hip and through your core and transmitting all movement. of your support Just through that. Because if if you're then having this happen, you know, this adjustment, this manipulation, so that you feel so much better, well then let's actually support what's happening off the table when you're moving, that's making you not feel good. If we're not addressing the movement patterns that make you feel bad, and we're only addressing what's happening on a table passively, we're not actually helping you. It's not actually helping you. And I just want to reiterate that again and again and again. And there are incredible chiropractors that I love and I respect and I work with and that you know, get this concept and we, we work, whether we work together or the chiropractor does it all where they have that as maybe the help to access into the nervous system so someone can move better. And then the movement practice that happens after. And so it is, it's not that I'm against (laughs) chiropractic medicine. I love it. I'm here for, you know, empowering the person. Okay. What happens once you feel that release of tension? What happens once you feel that release of pain? How do we get you moving into the areas that you were feeling pain before? Whether that's even sitting or standing or laying down. We have to be a little bit more active in our treatment plan because that's what's actually going to create some long-term care. And that noise that we hear, whether it's that crack, which I could do you know, oh, I'm not getting any good cracks right now. Sorry. Oh, there's some, there you go. So whether it is that crack that, you know, you hear, there are other ways to access that relaxation and that pain relief in the body without having to do that. So as long as you also know that, right? And that's what our gen health, we really talk through and we educate a ton on different movement practices or breath practices or mindset tools that you can use that create the same effect that you can get from an adjustment and manipulation. And for this myth, we could really kind of expand this to all manual passive treatments. Yeah. You know, especially because you hear similar things with tissue work, you hear similar things with massage, like, oh, I need to get this fascia like broken up. I need to get this scar tissue broken up. There's, again, there's nothing magic that these techniques are doing except helping relax that area and in our opinion, to then open up and get you to do something active mm-hmm. so that you don't 
develop that again or don't keep falling back into that same pattern. Yeah, we have to create resiliency within the body and we don't do that passively. Like we we have to actively move. We have to not fear movement, not fear lifting weights, not fear bending down and doing something. Yeah. So that's ultimately like that one fires me up a lot. And again, if you want to hear more about that, please listen to episode 90. Yeah. On the podcast. And now we're out of time, so. <laughs> <laughs> Too much fiery passion on that one. Okay, go into your myth. Okay, first one that I want to dive into. And again, I'll say that I don't think that there's ill intentions in a lot of people who say this, but the whole, you can't let your knees go past your toes. Like, oh, you're having knee pain. Don't let your knee go past your toe, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's just, again, it's so half-assed backwards in the thinking of, okay, well, this chair is pretty low. When I sit down in this chair, my knee needs to go past my toe. When I go up and downstairs, my knees need to go past my toe, sitting down on the toilet, walking downhill. In all of these activities, your knees need to go past your toe to some extent. So again, if we train through every movement without letting our knee ever go past our toe, then we're not training ourselves for a functional pain-free life. You're going to get to the point where you're walking down a hill and say, hey guys, I need to stay here until you come back because I can't let my knee go past my toe. Right, which would be just an awful way to live. And we don't want that ultimately someone to get stuck in these patterns of fear or not being able to do anything. And trust me, as a former Pilates instructor, this was some of the language that was used a lot. I hope it's not anymore and I don't think it is, but in some of the principles and some of the things taught or even going to Pilates classes myself it would always be oh no keep the knee right over the ankle and you know and and maybe we're working for an intention right maybe we're trying to get a little bit more glute biased rather than quad biased and that's fine if we're going to explain why we're saying stack the knee directly over the ankle that's okay in an with that intention right Mm -hmm. but we also get to train the knee starting to go past the toe to get better ankle mobility to actually take pressure off of the knee yeah and kind of going off of that like there are reasons where for a short amount of time you might want to focus on not letting your knee go really far forward if you have pretty excruciating acute knee pain yeah right there are, there are reasons that you might want to say, okay, I'm going to try and keep my knee stacked a little bit more over my ankle to put mm-hmm. a little less pressure through it so I can squat and hinge a little bit more comfortably and I'm just going to bring my chest forward more to get my bottom back to the seat. But again, as that knee pain calms down, then how are we going to train that knee to make it a more re- resilient, robust joint yeah. so that as we get later in life, if, if you're, we're going to have kids or if we're going to have grandkids, we can bend down and squat down to the ground and play with them and we can lunge and get down on one knee and do all these things without having to have fear of having pain. Yeah. And so, yeah, in short, your knees are going to need to go past your toes and past your feet throughout life. So we need to train our body to be ready for that. Yeah. And I think we did do an episode with Kelly Storett again, yeah. <laughs> um, where we talked about his total knee replacement mm-hmm. and how now he's in full flexion, full squat, you know, all the way butt to ground and having the knee past the toe. So I think that's a really cool testament of like, it's possible. Does it take time? Does it take work? Does it take a lot? Yes. And is it possible? Yes. <laughs> so yeah. continuing to to tell your brain, to tell your mind, like, this is safe. This is okay. And you get to progressively and slowly and, you know, work your way back into it, I think is important. Okay. Myth number three. 
Okay. What do you got for us? So this one is just a cue that I honestly used to use as well. Um, and you hypocrite. I know. I'm you saying hypocrite. that I have learned and I, li- I don't like it as anymore. So this is a cue a lot of people use when you're doing core exercises laying on your back. It's to smash, you know, smash your spine into the ground. And for some people, this can work and this is okay. But like for me, it might work better. For Dom, I honestly don't think it would work well because he has a little bit more lordosis within the back. And he, so him smashing his spine into the ground is going to take a lot more force, which is going to put a lot more pressure up into the front of his abdominal region, which is just then working into, it, it's dispersing pressures not well when we're doing yeah. core. We want to be able to disperse the pressures from our back to our front, to our um, to our bottom with our pelvic floor and all the way out to the sides. But if I smash my back into the ground, a lot of times what happens is I end up bulging right in the middle of my stomach, which is that tissue that brings the rectus abdominals, that six pack muscle together. But if Mm -hmm. I'm putting just so much tension through one area that I'm losing all the tension that I have throughout all my abdominal muscles in my pelvic floor. So I don't think that focusing on pushing the, the the low back into the ground is actually an effective cue for correct core pressures. Yeah. And I mean, you brought up me and how you don't think that would be good. And I would absolutely agree. One, because I have historically always put all of my pressure straight forward. I have yeah. a degree of separation in that linea alba or that center part of the abs that you talked about. I've always been very rectus abdominis dominant. Yeah. And when I'm on the ground and I have the best or what I feel like is the best stability and pressure in my core, my low back hardly even touches the ground sometimes. Yeah. Uh, one, because I have such a big booty, but two, two <laughs> he bo- does actually. <laughs> <laughs> because for most of my life, I've had excessive lordosis, which yeah. is a lot of arch in my low back. And I round a little bit more in my thoracic spine or my upper back. Mm-hmm. So again, my booty and my upper back will touch. And when I create really good or what I feel is really good pressure from my rib cage to my pelvis, um, my low back might not touch the ground, but I feel like I have a very strong central core during that. And that's kind of what we like to focus on instead is mm-hmm. what is the relationship like from your rib cage to your pelvis? Are you remaining flat ribs to pelvis and side to side from hip bone to hip bone? Yep. Um, and then again, we always like to bring in the top and the bottom of that abdominal canister, which is your pelvic floor and your diaphragm, which are these two kind of diaphragm structures or domed structures that kind of work together in creating the top and bottom of that pressure system. Yeah. And I think I can even go back into older videos from the optimal body when I, you know, when we had that program together and, and see old videos when I used to cue this. So again, I used to cue it. I was a Pilates instructor. I thought this was what you did. And the cue I really didn't like was, and I still don't like, is just bring the belly button to the spine. Also not a good cue because then you're just sucking the belly in and then really putting a lot of pressure down to the pelvic floor. Not great but also not great to push the spine down because we all have different structures within the body. And it is not bad if you have more low doses or if you stand a little bit more anteriorly tilted, like that's not bad. Let's work within what your body is naturally doing. And I mean, that's just, oh, that that leads into another myth, I guess I can just a little bit touch on. on I know <laughs> it's just like the, I have anterior pelvic tilt. What do I do? Well, are you having pain? Are you 
you know, mm. is it decreasing your function in any yeah. way? Like if not, then. I mean, the podcast we did on that, like the statistics show that most pe- people have some degree of anterior or yeah. posterior pelvic tilt. Most asymptomatic people yes. have some degree of anterior or posterior pelvic tilt. Like rarely do people ever sit in this exact neutral position. Yeah. Like and- I have anterior pelvic tilt proud of it do i have pain like because of it now no no but did you have different pressures that you were working with yeah and so we just got to learn how to that i still work with (laughs) yeah so we you just get to learn how to like reuse your body in those mechanics that actually work for you i I like how you just i mean this is something that we always talk about like one cue is not going to work for everybody one like way of positioning or getting into an exercise it's not going to translate for everybody and um a good friend of ours Mark Burek, I mean, he's a professional volleyball player, but he <laughs> called me up one day and he's just like, I always hear people talking about this old suck your belly button to your spine yeah. thing. And he's just like, it doesn't work for me. I always feel like I need to push out. Yeah. He's like, I feel like I need to push out a little bit into my stomach to create the best pressure overall. Mm-hmm. And when, when he started getting me thinking about it, I'm like, hey, me too, kind of. Like, mm-hmm. I need to push out again to feel like I can get that engagement around through the sides a little bit better. And I'm not just focusing on this anterior tension that you're trying to create. And so I'm just like, if you feel like that works better for you, like, great, that's what you should be thinking. But just know that that's not going to translate to everybody else. Right. And so if you want to understand, like, okay, if you're sitting here thinking, then what do I do? One quick thing that you can do, and we can all do together is just placing your hands along the low rib cage, whether you're laying down or sitting and take a deep breath into your rib cage. And then as you breathe out, think of the the pelvic floor doing like an elevator lift up to your rib cage. And as you lift up, you're thinking of just gradually dropping the rib cage and allowing the belly to come back as well with everything. So hip bone to hip bone is kind of getting tighter. Now, this is a better cue to kind of wrap and up. And I love when like as my belly grows it it, even now it's cool to see like it's so much more obvious to see a core contraction on a pregnant woman because you see how the belly lifts and comes in and you're like oh my gosh from this full pregnant belly all the way up to this like pulled in position it's a really cool thing to be able to see so i'll show that more as i continue to grow on social media um the belly not the numbers but (laughs) I just thought to clarify, but I just want to also say, you know, understanding that through different movement and different core exercises, go into the core plan on Gen Health because that's where you're really going to get like the full meat of it all. Yeah. I mean, and of course we always have our link down below where you can get a free week trial so you can start out that first week of the core plan. I mean, really you have a week to view it all. So you could go ahead into the second week and just like see what all those exercises are, find the cues that work for you. Mm-hmm. So many people talk about like, oh, it was the simplest exercise, mm-hmm. but I felt things really start to click when I did it. And then mm-hmm. I finally understood what it meant to have this good core stability. And pelvic floor changes and all these things that happen through people just doing the, the core plan. The amount of people who have said, oh my gosh, I just went through two weeks of the core plan and I haven't leaked in the last 10 days. I know, it's not even built for that, but it's like amazing to see that. Yeah. Really cool. You know, you use the cues and... Are you crying again? <laughs> Stop. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Stop. Okay, go on to the last myth. Oh, the last one. And I hope, again, I'm going to like preface and clarify and hedge <laughs> what I say here because um, this could hit home for some people. But one of my least favorite things 
that I hear people say is, oh, that's genetic. Oh, yeah. About a lot of different things. Like, oh, I have a bunion. That's genetic. Yeah. Oh, knee pain. Everyone in my family has it. That's genetic. Or, oh, I have rounded shoulders. That's genetic. Look at my mom. Look at my grandma. That's genetic. And so many other things that, you know, we've talked to a geneticist on the podcast. We've, we've talked to people who understand this thoroughly. There is not, for most of these things, there is not just like one gene that is the bunion gene. Right. Right. That's not a thing. Or there's not one gene that is the weak bone gene. Like, oh, osteoporosis, I just have that because it's genetic. Like, there are probably genetic predisposition, you know, and predisposing factors that might, you know, again, increase our risk of developing these things, right? There's not a bunion gene, but there might be a gene that has to do with more laxity in our muscles and tendons. Or there might be a gene that has to do with, you know, difficulty developing stability around certain joints or whatever it might be um, that again might predispose us to start developing this. But again, when people just say it's genetic, like what I've learned in all my studies and what I think most scientists would agree with me on, like there's this whole argument, nature versus nurture. Is it nature, our genetics, or is it nurture, the environment and the activities that we do and the food and the water and everything we put in our body, the messages we tell ourselves? Which one is it? It's not an either or conversation. Mm -hmm. It's always both. And when we say it's just genetics, we're ignoring complete whole factions of science that are epigenetics and nutrigenomics, which basically have to do with the things that turn our genes on and off, epigenetics and Mm -hmm. nutrigenomics, more so dealing with what we put in our body Mm -hmm. and how that activates or influences different, different genes. So... Whenever people say that's just genetic, like I really, really, I always want to challenge them on it in a way that helps open up the understanding that there are still things we can do to reduce the risk. Yes. Like if we have genes that predispose us for something, there are still th- these nurture things th- that we can do, these activities, things we can eat, supplements we can take that might reduce that risk. Right. I mean, and I think that's where we just go, well, humans are stubborn because we are. Like we, we, we want fall an easy into, excuse. Well, and we fall into the patterns we like. We we like our shoes. We like our our heels. We like our, you know, we we like the activities we like and we don't want to go out and, and try something else. Or we we just fall into these things that we really are a little bit stubborn and that's all of us, okay? <laughs> I'm not calling anyone out. So it's just, well, have we tried switching up our shoes? Have we tried, you know, adding more mobility in? Have we tried this breath work thing that might take down some of those pains you're having? Have we tried something else? And, you know, it's cool to even see. So I will say, you know, when we had our genes looked at, you know, I was more predisposed to joint breakdown and degeneration and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. more predisposed within my genes. But she was like, it's a, incredible that you are already doing mobility and strength training and all the things that are going to help support that yeah. as you continue to age. And it's cool to be able to see my mom even now who never lifted weights. I mean, still, it's hard to get her to go above five pounds, but to start to do it now and she does have pains and she does have inflammation and she does have some joint breakdown, but she's, she's learning and she's continuing to expose herself to more things. And so I think that's what 
Like, can we break out of our stubborn patterns just a little bit so we try something new? Absolutely. And yeah, I didn't think that this was even going to come up, but I kind of want to just mention it because I haven't really talked public publicly about this a lot. But you know, I have a lot of addiction on the mom side on my mm. mom's side of the family. You know, I, I've lost two uncles because of addiction. My grandpa was an addict. My grandma's father committed suicide because of addiction. Like all the way through, almost every man on my mom's side of the family has addiction. And that is something that has different genetic traits mm -hmm. <laughs> that are linked with addictive behaviors and addictive tendencies. Mm -hmm. So again, do I just say like addiction, that's genetic. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to have it. No. And I mean, actually just a couple days ago, so, as we're recording this, like <laughs> I just hit a year of not having alcohol or any sort of cannabis product, which is is super fun and it's yeah, it's, it's really, really cool amazing. and it's really cool to have gone that whole year because there were many periods in my life where i never could have imagined that yeah. and even when i tell good friends of mine or when i'm out at weddings and stuff like that and i just say like oh no i'm not drinking tonight and they're like oh really why not and it's like well i've actually been sober for over a year now um and i made an agreement with myself to do it for a year and Coming up to the year, I'm like, I don't even want to start considering it because of how my body feels, how healthy I feel, how my mind feels. And so again, do we blame the nature? Do I blame the genetics of my family and that everyone on my mom's side of the family is an addict and so it's just going to be something that's part of my life? Or do I continue to try and have more awareness and develop different behavioral patterns in my life and set myself up with systems and people around me that are going to support different choices? Mm -hmm. And there's definitely ways we can shift that script because there have been periods in my life where I felt like I was going to slip down that rabbit hole really fast. Yeah. So. I mean, I just have to say congratulations, Dave. <laughs> Thanks, baby. It is so <laughs> incredible to be able to witness that and you take nah, action. I'm, not, I'm crying. No, you're crying. <laughs> you take action all for yourself and like be able to make that happen. I think that's yeah. really really awesome and incredible um, got a baby on the way yeah no we're both not drinking <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that just goes to show how how possible it is to lean into the things that aren't always comfortable and aren't always the easiest right to be in social situations and restrict things and and choose a different path and even speaking into movement practices, you know, developing new movement practices is uncomfortable. It is something that it takes time to build and, and, and try on for a while to actually see consistent change. But what if you did, you know, mm -hmm. the, the possibilities of not relying on, well, this is just what it is. is Which is kind of the common thread cool. through all of the myths that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, the myth itself is meant to be the quick fix and the excuse that yeah. we just don't agree with. And our answer or our explanation is a very not sexy version of <laughs> how to solve that over time and continue to work on it for decades into the rest of your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so again, like consistency breeds change. Consistency breeds new behaviors and development of new behavior patterns. And that's really what we're all about. That's really what this podcast is about, is helping teach people how to have that openness and awareness that you can start to develop different patterns in your body. You can start to develop different behaviors and exercises. And as long as you stick with it consistently, you might not notice drastic change in the first week or month or maybe even year. <laughs> but over a lifetime, like that's when we start to move the needle. 
Well, thank you for joining us through that little fun episode. We hope that you enjoyed it and hopefully got to learn a little bit more as we continue to learn. You know, coming out with these myths is something that we can only do because we continue to learn and understand the body more. And we love and appreciate that you're here to do that with us. And if you heard something that you think, you know, this person keeps talking about this myth, pass this episode along. Let them know what you think, get their opinions on it. We're all open to just continuing to learn and continuing to open our minds to feel better and and feel something different within our body. So thank you again for being here with us and we can't wait to see you on another episode.